everybody. Welcome to the Minnesota Bound podcast, the stories behind the stories. I'm Laura Sherry, your host for today. And along with us is Angie Hong. She is a coordinator of Minnesota's East Metro Water Education Program. However, uh, she is so much more than that. I found Angie via Instagram um, and her TikTok pages, which is at mnnature underscore awesomeness. And boy, is your content awesome. So much about nature and education (laughs) that I had to invite Angie onto the podcast. Angie, how are you? I am doing great. And yes, thank you so much for reaching out. Um, I'm especially good because I noticed the sun just finally came out. So I'm looking at some beautiful yellow flowers outside my window, and that's making me feel cheery right now. Oh, my goodness. Well, if you haven't heard of Angie, um, please check out her content on Instagram. And when I fell upon your page, which was totally organically. I found you on the Explorer page. So obviously I follow a lot of nature pages, but um, I hopped on your page and I was like, who is this lovely young lady doing all of this amazing education in these short moments via social media? And you are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to conservation. I mean, it's so many things, history of our state. What, I mean, have you been doing this for a long time? Um, what made you decide to just share all of this, your passion on social media? Sure. Yeah. So believe it or not, um, I have been coordinating this East Metro Water Education Partnership for 17 years now. So nice. I love that you called me a young lady, but I really don't feel young anymore. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I think you are. Yeah, but it is a local government partnership started way back in 2006. And the idea was, you know, the cities, watershed districts, counties, soil and water conservation district, we're all sitting together thinking we all are trying to engage the public. And we're all trying to teach people about the things they do in their everyday life that could help to protect our lakes and our rivers and help to restore our habitat. Why don't we just pool our funds together and have a shared education program? Um, So I have been doing that for years. And, you know, prior to COVID, that was lots of in-person events and in-person workshops. And I still do in-person stuff. But of course, you know, everybody's life changed when 2020 came along. Um, So trying to think of creative ways to be continuing to be out there and talking with people and sharing education and information, I fell upon TikTok. (laughs) Yes. And yep. <laughs> Who didn't during COVID? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, when I was just thinking, well, what what a fun way, whether you love or you hate social media platforms, it really is a great way to be able to very visually show people, um, you know, here's the landscape that we're working in, or here's what a restored prairie looks like, or here's the St. Croix River. Maybe you've never got out on it before, but this is what it looks like if you go out on the backwaters. Um, And so, you know, in the beginning, it was kind of a tragic flop, the videos I was making, um, but they, they picked up over time. And so I've, I guess, been making the videos for around three years now, a little, little less than that. But um, yeah, Yeah. just finding a fun way to engage with the public and kind of connect with different audiences than I would in the more traditional ways. And as I, you know, I can say this so many times, you do such a great job and you, you know, you cover a lot of Minnesota and also Wisconsin and, you know, for just doing this for three years, you have 30,000 followers on your page. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) 
It is. It is. It's it's really funny when I stop and think about that because I'm like, who like who are all these people? You know, and I do every once in a while. Um, I, I mean, live in Stillwater, which is a pretty small town, so it's one of those places where every time you go to the coffee shop, somebody's like, oh hey, 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 you know, sharing sure. people you know, but. Um, I do sometimes even in, you know, the big metropolis of Woodbury, I might be out and meet somebody and they're like, this might seem like a weird question, but do you make videos for Instagram and TikTok? And I'm like, yeah, oh, it yeah. is me. <laughs> I, I exist in real life too, but here I am. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, um, and I, I love all of that. That's incredible to have that kind of audience listening to um, conservation and nature mm-hmm. ideas, of course, is all for um, great consumption. What like what type for those that have not aren't following you yet, but they probably will be after the podcast. What are some of the topics you cover? Because you do a wide range of information. It is. Yeah. Um, so one of the popular things that people like to learn about is what they can do in their own yard. Um, during May, there has been the big no mow May movement in recent Mm -hmm. years to hold off on mowing your lawn for the months to allow these low growing flowering plants to come up, kind of reduce the noise pollution and the air pollution, and then have some pollinator nectar out there. Um, but then during the whole year, people are just getting more and more interested in native gardens and landscape restoration, pollinator gardens. So I talk a lot about that. And it's actually something that um, the office where I work, Washington Conservation District, has been helping people on since the 40s, the 1940s. Um, so we have staff at our office that will go out and do site visits with landowners and help them put together restoration plans or give them plant lists and everything like that. And And I get to showcase projects that I've done in my own yard or projects that have happened elsewhere in the area. Um, So that's a big topic. And then... Can we dive into that before you jump into the next thing? Since it's it's fascinating. What are some things that people can do for their lawns to help with water runoff, maybe using less... um, weed and pesticides, herbicides, um, things like that. Is there like, what are, if you have like a five top things you could do to make an impact, what would those be? Yeah. So the easiest thing that people can do, and this is like the no cost, no effort thing is just to let your lawn grow taller. Because if you have a three or four inch tall lawn, the roots will be proportionately deeper and it will be more resilient for droughts and more resistant to weeds and other pests. Um, So that's going to be better. And that's, you know, just this super simple change to be able to make. Um, A thing that has become increasingly popular, I'd say maybe in the past five years, is people wanting to convert their traditional turf lawn to a bee-friendly lawn or a clover lawn. Mm. And so we've been putting on a lot of webinars and workshops with, um, we'll do it with Blue Thumb Planting for Clean Water. Uh, James Wolfen is now with Twin City Seed, but he used to be with the University of Minnesota Bee Lab. And uh, talking about how you can do that with an existing lawn and basically just overseeding and adding in clover, self-heal, creeping thyme, some of these other low-growing plants, kind of going back in time to more of that 1940s lawn look before uh, before we started having monoculture lawns. Um, so those are two easy strategies. Uh 
there are options for like Lomo turf options. Okay. So um, if you, this takes a little bit more effort, but you could replace uh, Kentucky bluegrass is the dominant grass that people are usually using in lawns. And if you replace it with a fine fescue, they're slow growing and they're drought tolerant. And so you can have a lawn that maybe only needs to be mowed twice a summer instead of every single week and is more drought resistant that you don't end up having to water it at all during the summertime. Um, it takes a little bit more effort if you want to keep it solely grass and not have, you know, the weeds coming up into it. Um, but it is, it's pretty cool. And the examples I've seen where people have gone and gotten that low mow look. Very good. Do you find that people are, if they have kids, they are a little bit more hesitant to add in the clover and things like that with kind of attracting Attracting bees? Yes. (laughs) And um, I think it's a legitimate concern, honestly, um, because, you know, at our office in Oakdale, we're in a commercial industrial, you know, office park kind of area. And we do have demonstration bee lawn. Ours has a pretty high amount of the creeping thyme in it, which is beautiful. It's got lots of these little low growing purple flowers. But believe me, there are bees just everywhere, um, which is very cool. And it's a great use for if you have lawn that, you know, people buy like the house out in the country and it's got three acres of lawn and you're not going to want to use all three acres of it. Um, And so it's a great use for those lesser used parts. But if you want to have kids running around barefoot, I really wouldn't recommend having it because there honestly are, you know, tons of bees that are in the, um, in the bee friendly lawn. So you know, if you want kids and pets using it, which I've, you know, I've got a kid, I've got dogs. Um, in our backyard, we tried just folding in more of those fine fescues like I was talking about. So I don't have to mow very often and I'm not watering. I tolerate the fact that we do have some weeds out there. I don't let it bother me. Um, and that seems to be a pretty good compromise. Sure. And you also have... Um a blog since we're on the topic of what you can mm-hmm. do in your yard and your blog is eastmetrowater.org. Yep. And I saw that you had an article about, it says debunking myths about rain gardens. So yeah. can we go into that just a little bit? Cause I'm so curious on, um, what the myth is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so rain gardens is another thing that people can do in their yards. If they're homeowners, we also have a lot of cities that install rain gardens along roadways when they're doing road improvement projects. And they're basically just regular gardens that are scooped out a little bit so that when it rains, the water that would be running off of the street or a driveway or coming down the downspot of a house, instead of going into a storm drain, it goes into the garden and then it can soak into the ground or it gets taken up by the plants and evaporates when the sun's out. Um, So it's a really great way to reduce stormwater runoff. And like I said, a lot of cities have been putting these in along their roadways. Um, For example, in Stillwater, where I live, they have them, you know, all up and down Pine Street, which is one of those grand streets with all the big mansions on it. And oh, yeah. Yeah. And so The rain gardens are awesome, um, but, you know, it it can be problematic to try to keep them looking really good if people have super high expectations for, you know, they will always be perfect. They will always be weed free. They will, you know, it's like they do do require maintenance. Any garden is going to require maintenance. Um, 
you know, and so there's just been some strange rumors that have accumulated over time. Um, you know, I remember one example with a community where they were considering putting in rain gardens as part of a road project and people in the neighborhood were so worried that it was going to be a risk that kids were going to like trip and fall into the rain gardens and somehow drown. Um, you know, and really they, (laughs) they're not like ponds, they're just gardens that have a little bit of water in them right after it rains and then the water soaks into the ground and that's it. Then they go back to just looking like gardens again. Um, so I think that it was more of a, you know, a perception issue that people weren't quite sure what, you know, what a rain garden actually was. Um, sure. Yeah. But the rain gardens, we've been installing them very successfully in Minnesota for about 20 years now. And I can think of a few examples where they've been a key strategy in restoring a polluted lake where, you know, having a number of people in the neighborhood surrounding that lake put in the rain gardens has actually helped to be able to take that lake off the impaired waters list. Really? Mm -hmm. That's, um, and I, you know, I think that's sometimes those mildly simple things are, have such great impact on conservation efforts. And it's so, um, it's, that's what I love that you're sending out the message of some of these things that to do. And even like the no mo may, yeah. I would assume people would also think, well, what kind of impact does that really have just to not mow my lawn for a month? You know, is it, how many people do we need to be doing that to really make an impact? And, um, when you have all the data and the stats behind it, um, and how, what a big impact some of these very simple conservation efforts can do. Um, I, I hope that it would, uh, open people up to the idea of, um, allowing different, I guess, types of plants and things to grow in their lawns or whatever, that we have this fascination, not all of us, but some of us with having like the perfect lawn and there can't be a weed growing anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I find that interesting because, um, you know, there are some quote unquote weeds that grow that are actually edible. They have yeah. medicinal properties and um, we put so much hate on them. <laughs> so I know, I know. <laughs> it's kind of interesting that that we have yeah. this perception that if it's not perfectly green grass, then it's bad. So um, mm-hmm. I just, I, I admire all the the work you're doing into educating people on like, look at all these simple, fun you know, unique ways you can make an impact. Yeah. Well, and I really feel like it's, it's addictive and it takes off, you know? So you do one thing and people tell me this all the time. They do one thing like the no mome, but then that gets them started thinking, well, what, what else can I do the rest of the year? And now they're planting a pollinator garden and now they're talking to their neighbors and whether or not people admit that they are influenced by what their neighbors do, they totally are. Um, so we can very much see that now that we've got the benefit of, you know, 15 years time, we can see examples where there's the one, that first person who took the leap of faith and they did this thing. They, you know, they planted a rain garden, they planted a native garden, they converted their lawn to a prairie, whatever it was. And it it has ripple effects and other people in the area start doing it. And you get five or 10 years down the line, the whole neighborhood looks a lot different. Uh, awesome. What, um, so I know we kind of took a, a sharp right there on talking about yeah, okay. <laughs> lawn conservation, uh, but I didn't, I wanted you to continue talking about some of these other fascinating subjects that you cover. Sure. Um, well, 
Another thing that I like to make videos about are the success stories where we have cool projects that um, state, local government, nonprofit partners are working on because I feel like a lot of times people put in so much time, so much effort, and frankly, a lot of money into these really amazing land preservation or lake restoration projects, and they just don't get the big boom of media publicity that you think they mm-hmm. ought to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worry sometimes that, you know, the public feels like, hey, nothing's happening. Nothing's ever changing. And really, there's so much happening. It's so much work going on. Um, it's just that we're all stretched so thin and have such limited budgets that we can't really, um, you know, toot our horns and promote ourselves the way uh I don't know, a soda company could, you know what sure. I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's like the PR, it's good though, because you're the PR, your dollars are not going to PR, which that exactly. would be the wrong thing. The dollars are actually going to the work. So the PR kind of becomes the last thing, but it, it should be recognized for sure. Cause also people are really curious of like, where is my money going? So yeah, yeah. the fact that it's like going to such great things and yeah, you're, you're right. So, that needs a voice. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, and when it's someplace like, oh, for example, Afton State Park right now, um, the South Washington Watershed District is doing a stream remeander project on this little trout brook that goes through Afton State Park. Well, everybody in the Twin Cities area knows where Afton State Park is. Most people have visited it at least once. It's a very popular, very beloved park. Um, but a lot of people would have no idea that that stream restoration work is going on. Um, and it's pretty cool because, you know, if you step back like 10 years ago, this was a dead stream that didn't have trout in it. It was called trout and it didn't have any trout in it. And now the thing is full of trout. They're doing kind of it in pieces. So they had done one remander about three years ago and they're doing the next one currently as we speak. So if you were out there this fall, you could actually see like the old so uh, I should step back. Um, remeandering is like when you have a what used to be a natural stream. And what happened during settlement and development is that people, as they were like farming or developing to build houses, took a lot of these wiggly streams and made them straight. So they were basically ditches instead of streams. Um, And that had a really big impact on the ecology and the fish populations. And so in the example of Trump Brook, they're going back now and they're like rebuilding the natural stream corridor. So you can see like the old straight channel and the new wiggly channel side by side. And they'll wait till all the vegetation at the bottom of the new one gets established. And then in the spring, they'll basically just turn off the old channel and turn on the new one and off the water will go. And, you know, then all the fish and the bugs and the turtles will have a more natural environment to live in. Um, but incredible, super cool projects like that just happening all the time. And, you know, a lot of times flying under the radar for most people. It's summer season, which means thunderstorms can roll on in. Are you prepared for a power outage at your home or business? The Minnesota Propane Association wants you to know that installing a propane generator will ensure peace of mind when the power goes out. Also, the same propane that powers your generator can also power all the major appliances in your home. Installing propane appliances instead of electric appliances in your home or business will reduce the size and cost of the generator. Imagine running all your gas appliances at one time versus picking and choosing which electric ones to run during a power outage. Reliable, affordable, safe. Propane, the energy for everyone. To find out more about generators and propane appliances, go to propane.com. Also, it's time for Kinetico. You know, 
our Minnesota cabin life is in full swing. In fact, we're just back from four days up north. Such a joy now that we have Connecticut water in the woods. Last year, we were lucky enough to add Connecticut water at the cabin, and oh boy, what a difference. For as long as I can remember, we've dealt with that stinky, foul well water. But really, after a painless four-hour installation, we have Connecticut soft water and also Connecticut's K5 drinking system. No more bottled water to try and make early morning coffee. Great drinking water right out of the K5 tap. Our laundry no longer smells funny. And Connecticut water cleaned up the showers and the dishes. The world's most efficient, worry-free water system. Visit Connecticut.com to find a dealer near you and join the Connecticut family. Hey there, Bill Shirk, the man about the woods. Propane, it's clean, efficient fuel produced right here in the United States. Schedule your propane service with a friend. Lakes Gas, a family-owned provider serving the upper Midwest for more than 60 years. 54 convenient locations in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Now with offices in North Dakota and South Dakota, too. Lakes Gas employees live in the communities they serve so you can expect personalized service from professionals. Oh, and the Lakes Gas offers competitive pricing without all the extras that tend to drive up fuel prices. Safe, dependable service. Lakes Gas, the right choice for your home, business, or farm. Visit lakesgas.com and join the family. For sure. Is is there like a, in your personal opinion, um, you know, we hear about the issues of clean water, of course, and some other things that are, you know, going on within our state. Is there, they're like within the elements of things that need to have attention, such as clean Mm -hmm. water or invasive species or including plant species and also invasive water species, et cetera. Is there like in your personal opinion, one that probably needs the most attention right now? Like, is Um, there more of an... I know. I feel like really know about. Well, there's kind of a tie in my mind. Um, So one issue that is really dramatically affecting our lakes in particular right now is shoreline development. Um, There is a natural shorelines partnership that is like state and local government and nonprofit partners that had recently issued an analysis saying that statewide throughout all of Minnesota, we've lost like 40 to 50 percent of our natural shorelines. And the result is that we're losing the habitat where loons are nesting and turtles are nesting and fish are spawning. And so even in these lakes that appear like they're healthy, they're really losing their wildlife and biodiversity. Um, So that's like a big call to action that um, all of these partners are starting to rally around is engaging lakeshore landowners on protecting the natural shorelines that they still have and restoring ones in places where it's been converted to a lawn or converted to a retaining wall or rock riprap, that kind of stuff. Um, so sure. that's a big and issue. Also like the swimming beach, you know, you buy the cabin, yeah. you're like, we need the swimming beach. And you probably don't really even think um, you wouldn't intentionally want to take homes away yeah. from our wildlife, of course, but then you may not even realize if everybody's doing that, yeah, there's that a it big has problem. a big cumulative <laughs> impact. Yep, that's yes. the thing is that one or two people doing it doesn't really affect the lake that much, but 
Um, by the time you have half of the landowners on the lake doing it, then it then it becomes a problem. Um, the other issue that we're really getting worried about recently is chloride pollution from salt. And this is a problem because it's one of those pollutants that we don't have a practical way to get it out of the water once it's in the water. So in other examples, like we have a lot of lakes that have too much phosphorus and they get um, algae blooms during the summer. We know what to do about that. I mean, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort, but we can fix the problem. Um, with the chloride, it's like once it's in the water, there's no practical way to get it out. And so really the only thing we can do is try to protect the lakes and streams that haven't yet been um, contaminated by too much salt. And I think the number is 54 right now in Minnesota, 54 lakes and streams that they've said are impaired. Um, they have too much salt. And of course, it's toxic to freshwater life, you know, yeah. fish and insects. And then in some cases in lakes, it actually prevents them from turning over in the spring and the fall. So then you end up with this double impact of you know, when it turns over in the spring and the fall, that's normally when all the oxygen up at the top of the lake goes down to the bottom and all the nutrients from the bottom come up to the top. If it doesn't turn over, then you end up with a dead zone down at the bottom where there's not enough oxygen. Um, so that that obviously has a big impact on the fish and all the aquatic life as well. So yeah, salt's a big concern. And then loss of natural shorelines. Those are two big ones that I don't think I'm hearing people talk about nearly as much as they probably should be. No. And to be honest, I didn't know those two specifically myself. And I feel like mm -hmm. I'm in the industry where we're talking about to experts about conservation, you know, all the time. Yeah. And, um, and I'm assuming the salt issue is from the amount of salt that we're putting on our roads to melt ice and things like that. Is that it where that's is, coming from? Although, um, you would be surprised. So that's the biggest source is the road salt. Okay. Um, you'd be surprised. There's actually an awful lot that is also coming from water softeners, particularly in places where people are sending their water to a private septic instead of to a community wastewater treatment plant, um, because all of the waste or, you know, all the salt that's in your water softener, then when that gets sent out into the drain field, that salt is then getting into the groundwater. Um, and for people who are living close to lakes, that's then seeping into the lakes or seeping into the streams. Um, oh, so my goodness. Yeah, I know. So it's like these little things that you wouldn't think could be an issue are actually are an issue. Isn't yep. that fascinating? You know, um, my boyfriend, Dan and I, we also have a home in Washington state and they don't use salt on any of the roads. Uh -huh. So granted they don't get snow and ice like we get here in Minnesota. So I'll put, I, I do know that, but however, occasionally there are a few times during the winter where they are getting some ice, icy rain and snow conditions more than a few times. And it is just basically you don't leave your house because <laughs> yep. they yeah. are not salting a single road out there because of um, their rivers and water systems and things as well. So um, maybe Minnesota needs to have a few more snow days and we all just, you know, like stay inside on a snowy day versus getting in exactly. our cars. Exactly. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> it would actually. I think, you know, kids would probably like it. Maybe, you know, they love those snow days. They get to go in the backyard and sled down the hill versus going to school. But mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. that is a very interesting, and who'd have thought, like, I never would have made the assumption that water softeners would become an issue for our, our freshwater systems. It's so yeah. fascinating. Yep. Yep. Wow. Um, that is, and you know, the solutions to that are, those are complicated. 
Yeah. You know, I just, and I think that's the hardest thing is that uh, sometimes the public expects, you know, like, oh, there's an answer to everything and there isn't always an answer to everything, or at least we haven't discovered the answer yet. Um, so in some cases we're like, yeah, we know what to do about it. We just don't have uh, necessarily the money or the public buy-in. And then other times it's like, nope, we're still not sure what to do about it. We're still researching it, still trying to figure it out. So fascinating. Well, hopefully their technology will be our saving grace and solutions going forward for a lot of our, our issues. Um, so we can keep our water systems healthy. I, I, um, you know, it's like the micro, even the micro insects that people don't think about that are environmental indicators and such as dragonflies and how, mm-hmm. you know, you see a dragonfly flying around and you're like, yeah, they're kind of a pest. They might buzz your ear every now and then, but you have no idea how important those are to our environment. And if that was to collapse because they spend three years of their infancy underwater before they're actually a dragonfly Mm -hmm. that if those aren't out there, they're just like bees, like our our whole ecosystem could collapse, which I think is like fascinating and how every insect and most of which I don't know where wood ticks falls in this, but um, you know, this insects to mammals and birds, fish, all of it, they all have a role in what they do to help the environment. And it, and I feel like if we can get more people conscious of, you know, how, us as humans really put a damper on that perfectly moving system that if we weren't here, it would just thrive. Right. So um, how can we, how can we help in those ways to make sure that the system keeps moving smoothly? Because if we start really destroying too many things where we have some of those environmental indicator species really die off, I mean, we could really be in trouble. Yep. And I'm not trying to be fear-mongering at all. I'm not up no, to that. No. I just think but it's I, fascinating. I, mean, I was talking with my son yesterday, and I was even talking about plants. I said, you know, I know a lot of people think plants are boring, but plants are amazing. Plants make food out of sunlight and air. You know, like how crazy yes. is that? I mean, <laughs> that all of us are, um, you know, have to eat stuff, and they just make their own food. I mean, they're really magical, so... Another thing you um, posted on your Instagram as well, and I, I also love this book, is called The Hidden Life of Trees. And yeah. you had all the fun facts, and I would love for you to share some of those on how the communication and the in- interest, I can't even say the word, the, basically the web of trees is very deeply woven and how they actually communicate to each other. Do you want to, I know, I don't know if you remember all these facts off the top of your head. I don't want to put you on the spot. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I I know I'm certainly not going to be able to spit all the details off on the top of my head, but, you know, there's just been a whole lot of research looking at trees, how they release pheromones into the air, um, that they can send warning signals to one another. Um, They have these really intricate root systems. And I think as humans, we usually think, well, there's the root and it's in the dirt and that's it. Um, But there's so much more going on, you know, because there's these fungal networks, these mycorrhizae, um, bacteria decomposers. And, you know, so this whole kind of ecosystem that's existing below ground in the soil. Um, I had even read that there's some trees that are like friends with one another, so to speak, and others that don't communicate with one another, you know, so you might have, um, you know, two species of trees in a forest that kind of have this uh, symbiotic relationship, and then another that's existing in a totally different, you know, social sphere. Um, But yeah, I just feel like there, 
there's so much more to trees and um, so much more to like a forest ecosystem than just the trees uh, that we don't don't necessarily think about all the time. That's so true. I uh, when I was out mushroom foraging with uh, Mike Kempinek, he's the gentleman forager. He was um, doing a little segment on morel mushroom hunting, of course, which is like the golden sure. mushroom that everybody wants to oh, eat. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that maple trees have some sort of ability to kind of send out some sort of acidic component that makes the soil not appealing to grow a morel mushroom, and they do that on purpose which I thought was really interesting. So if you're hunting for morels around maple trees, and maybe it's a very specific species of a maple tree, um, that you're wasting your time, basically. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) I thought that was interesting. They're like, get those morels out of here. We're not interested in having those around us. So, And then Uh the the elm tree is like, loves the morel. That's that's the the one spot. Oh, that's so So. interesting. I didn't know that. See? So I just learned something. That's fun. Well, and the whole fungi world, is a whole, you're right. There's definitely an ecosystem with fungi and mushrooms and how they communicate to the trees and how that system works for the decomposing matter. And, um, also very fascinating. Um, Mm -hmm. but I kind of feel like this is one of the reasons that we, when we step into nature, we're so drawn to it and something happens in our biosphere, if you will, when we get into amongst trees and nature and birds singing that, there's some sort of Zen component that comes over us that we either feel or sense the um, ever moving system that is out there that Uh, just makes us feel at home with that. Yeah. Well, and it's just, it's always changing. I mean, that's the thing I love about having native gardens. They're always changing. It's the thing I love about going out on the St. Croix river. It's always changing. It's not, you know, every time you go down it, you could go down it like three weeks in a row and it could be a totally different experience. You'd see totally different wildlife. The water might be high, the water might be low. Um, it's just so dynamic. And so you don't get bored with it ever. No. Do you have any, um, since you are a, an expert on outdoors and nature and obviously the state of Minnesota, Wisconsin, what are some of your like favorite places to visit within our state that to you just are extra special? Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm probably similar to a lot of people in that I end up going to the places closest to home the most. So, um, I spend a lot of time on the St. Croix river cause I'm lucky enough to live and work in the area. And I love just even there's like a little stretch between the log cabin landing in Scandia and Marina and St. Croix that is so short and easy to do. And it's, you know, but you can get out on a backwater. It's so close to the Twin Cities. And yet you can be back there and have no cell signal, just this total wilderness-like experience, um, which is really cool. You can go down and get off at William O'Brien State Park. Um, and I know William O'Brien State Park is probably up popular location for a lot of people, but I love it. I love going there in the spring and seeing all of the marsh marigold and the skunk cabbage that come up mm. along the um, the seepage streams near the river. Um, if I was going to pick one outside of the St. Croix watershed area, I do adore Jay Cook State Park. Ah, uh, yes. The oh, I mean, like the river there is just a totally different kind of river than the St. Croix. You know, it's like it's big and it's rapidsy and, um, all the pine trees and 
it's just uh, the geology and everything is so cool. And it's such a big park that uh, you can explore so much while you're up there. Um, I guess one part of Minnesota that is a part I feel like people don't go to enough is Southeast Minnesota. Down, Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it's like such a sweet little treasure down there because there's just all these little streams and valleys and deep, deep, deep valleys. It's an area that didn't get hit by the glaciers. And so it's so much more topographic difference than in the rest of the state. Um, but it's not busy. Like (laughs) it's not like when you go up to the North shore and you're just battling crowds, um, you go down there and yeah, it's just this like sweet little hidden gem down in the corner of Minnesota. Ron Shera here with a question. Have you ever heard of an economic first responder? That's an economic first responder. Well, it's real. Think of Star Bank. Star Bank is saving local businesses as an economic first responder in the Twin Cities, the West Metro, and rural Minnesota. StarBank has been helping small businesses keep their lights on, pay their rent, pay their employees for months now. In fact, StarBank has helped 629 local businesses during this pandemic. And they've been keeping small businesses on Minnesota's main streets as well. Keeping small businesses alive. Economic first responders, indeed. You know, StarBank is our local hero during this pandemic. Find StarBank at StarBank.net on Facebook and on LinkedIn. Bank locally with StarBank. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. That's my choice, StarBank. Ron Shera here. We also want to thank North Dakota Tourism. You know, North Dakota is one of my favorite all-time hunting destinations. I can't believe it. It's the middle of the summer, and it's already time to start planning fall hunts in North Dakota. I have a few facts for you on the state's current hunting conditions. Get this, 2023 is one of the wettest springs on record, which means an estimated 3.4 million breeding ducks. That number is up from last year. Also, the 2023 spring pheasant crowing count survey is up 30% from last year. You add to that North Dakota's PLOTS program, you know, 800,000 acres of private land that is open to public walk-in hunting, and you have the perfect spot just waiting for your perfect fall hunt. Make memories and hunt North Dakota. Plan your adventure just like I do at HelloND.com. Ready for a women-forward car dealership? Rudy Luther Toyota empowers their many women on staff in sales, management, and service. Whether you are looking for a new Toyota or pre-owned vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota has something for everyone. Every vehicle comes with a Luther Advantage. 10 cents off fuel and car wash discounts at holiday stations, Luther Advantage warranty, and five-day return policy on pre-owned vehicles. Located just five minutes west of downtown Minneapolis, off 394 and General Mills Boulevard. And they're also hiring. Want to join the team but don't know where to start? Visit RudyLutherToyota.com today. You know, I found interesting in southeastern Minnesota is the amount of fossil hunting you can do. That Minnesota was under the ocean at some point. And I'm like, I don't even know how that's possible, but it was. And there are parts of southeastern Minnesota that you will find fossils on the side of a dirt road in the ditch. And they're right there. 
then yeah, they are I millions know. of years old. <laughs> yeah. um, and you are allowed to fossil hunt. It's it's really you know fascinating to think that you can step outside your car and two steps into a ditch and you're like finding things that are millions and millions of years old. Yeah. I love, um, love fossil hunting. It's funny because I actually just took my son yesterday to this group that was new to me that I just discovered called the St. Croix rock hounds. Um, Mm. I met a woman at the Washington County fair and she's telling me all about it. She said, Oh, there's this group of us that love rock hounding and we get together once a month. And I was looking at her and I'm like, my son is going to need to know about this because he's obsessed with rocks. I mean, our entire house is just slowly filling up with rocks that he collects. Um, And so, yeah, so we went and we met these other rock hounds. Everybody was supposed to bring a rock along to share, to pass, you know, do a show and tell. Um, So I brought along a rock that I found on Hidden Falls in St. Paul along the Mississippi River that's just full of all these um, brachypod and clam fossils. And yeah, it was so fun. It was such a, you know, like reliving grade school all over again with everybody For getting sure. to around the rocks and like, show me your rock. I want to look at your rock. <laughs> Isn't that so fun? I find myself yeah. collecting rocks too. I, um, I was collecting rose quartz in South Dakota. It's everywhere. And I love crystals and things, but, um, that was, Uh, when I was turkey hunting and then I was finding petrified wood, which I also love. So I'm picking up all these pieces and my dad was like, when did you become a rock hound? I'm like, I don't know. But (laughs) in recent years, I find myself, you know, finding these really interesting rocks. I was in Alaska and I um, went glacier climbing and we spent Mm -hmm. the night on the glacier. So I had to bring a glacier rock home. I mean, that was like, I felt like I was on Mars and I was bringing a piece of rock from a different planet. But no. now I realize I need to probably, if I'm going to keep my rock collection, um, start marking in small, either on a sticker or something, where it's from, because you can lose track very quickly. And of course, you oh, want yeah, to remember yeah. <laughs> where you, I need like an organized rock, you know, closet or something. But oh, I know. I'm always laughing whenever I'm doing laundry. I'll be like, oh my God, what is that noise in the washing machine? Like, oh, it sounds like there's rocks in there. And it is. That's why, because there's rocks in there. Um, you know, cause Charlie's just always coming home with his pockets full of rocks, that and sticks, you know, it's like, how could we possibly need any more sticks in our backyard than we already have? But it always seems like there's one more stick that's a little more special than the rest or exactly. it's just uniquely different in some way. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, if you have any dogs, they probably love the stick collection. Yeah. Yeah. We, we do. We, I guess, yeah, the dogs and the kid, they both love the sticks. <laughs> Oh, so fun. So do you hold um, in-person classes as well on besides, you know, your social media, if people really wanted to get deeper into education, are you, do you have events that you hold through the organization? Yeah, we do. Um, We, during the summertime, end up having a lot of in-person outdoor events. Uh, There is an agronomy outreach specialist that's uh, just started two years ago, Jennifer Hahn, and she's been putting on a lot of great events in person for farmers. Um, But for example, next week, Tuesday, I'm going to be out at Landfall, which is a mobile home park community on Tanner's Lake right by Oakdale. 
and we're doing a community event out there, planting a pollinator park and or a pollinator garden and looking for aquatic critters in the lake. And um, then my coworker, Barbara, on the very same day, she's going to be up at a lake in Chisago County where the landowners did a native shoreline planting. And it's kind of a big show and tell where people can come out and see the shoreline in person. Um, but we're always at the Washington County Fair. We were there all week last week and we helped to staff a couple of the booths at the Minnesota State Fair. So we'll be at the Adopt a Drain and the Blue Thumb planting for clean water area. There's one day the Minnesota DNR is having a water day. I think that is August 30th, Wednesday, August 30th. They're doing a water day. So we'll have a tent out there at the state fair. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to even rattle off all the all the different things that we're doing because it just seems like a nonstop barrage of events and activities but it's good. <laughs> it's all it's all fun, and it's always more fun to do it outside in the real world than um, than doing it online. As much as that is practical, <laughs> for sure. No, it's wonderful work you guys are doing, and um, and to be able to you know kind of take a deeper dive into some of the education is is very valuable. You know, the amount that you are offering on social media is also valuable. Valuable, but to get in person to learn in depth mm-hmm. on if you want to do um, some things around the house or what have you, but um, and besides just conservation and things on your page, you also go into like a lot of history of um, Minnesota, which I thought was also really interesting. Like you were talking about the history of Mille Lacs Lake, actually, not yeah. too long ago on your page. Um, well, and I just, I mean, I guess I find it fascinating, the history of how these places came to be. And just um, even realizing, too, that the history of people living in so many of these places is so, so, so much longer than just, you know, 1850, 1870, whatever time the first European settlers arrived in the area. It's like, wow, you look at a place like Mille Lacs Lake and people have been living there for 9,000 years. I mean, that's a, that's a really, really long time. Um, Just thinking of all the different ways people have interacted with the lake over that time. Absolutely. Is there, you know, a, a little slice of history where you're I mean, but of course, Mille Lacs is one of them, but um, other parts of our state where it's just so fascinating that people are all kind of in awe when you share it as far as the history. Of course, the Mississippi River has extensive history. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know well, if there's one part that, that you learn that you're like, that's really interesting. So I live in Stillwater and I remember being blown away when I learned that most of the land that is in downtown Stillwater was the result of a landslide that happened back in like 1837. I might have the date not quite right. Um, But back when people had first started settling the Stillwater area and they're building all the mills um, and they were routing water from the streams to go through these mills, there was a big flash flood and a huge chunk of the bluff. Because it used to be, if you can think of like Maiden Rock, Wisconsin, or just like any number of these little towns that's along riverways where it's like, just all squished up against the bluff. And most of the, um, you know, most of the developments either on top of the bluff or just this really narrow strip along the riverway. That's the way Stillwater was. Um, So there was a flash flood and this big chunk of the bluff basically sloughed away and went flowing down and filled in a nice, flat, buildable area that became what downtown Stillwater is now. Um, so I just find that kind of fascinating. It's like, oh, wow, we have like this nice, robust downtown area. 
um, that wouldn't have even been here if it weren't for this environmental catastrophe that I guess kind of ended up having a silver lining in the end for all of us that love coming to Stillwater now. That's so true. I, and you would never think that driving through it. The mm-hmm. fact that it does drive, you know, it gets down closer to the water levels and some of the others are really high up. And yep, yep. Um, that's so fascinating. I did not know that. Yep. <laughs> oh I, yep, I discovered that. Um, it was an article uh, in the, oh, it was from like the Washington County Historical Society had shared that quite a long time ago. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> For sure. And you were also talking about what would happen if we removed all the dams along the Mississippi River. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a thought process that is ongoing right now. So the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is in the middle of doing this dispositional study and they're looking at what would happen and do they want to remove the Ford Dam in St. Paul and the Lower St. Anthony Falls Dam in Minneapolis. Um, And right now, nobody is advocating one way or another. Um, The Friends of the Mississippi River has been very, very engaged. The National Park Service, as you might imagine, is very engaged in wanting to follow the process and um, engage the public and think through all the pros and cons of what might happen. Um, But yeah, the Army Corps is going through this study right now, and they will come out with some kind of recommendation, I think think 2024 or 2025 um, on whether or not they're going to recommend towards removing those dams. It would just totally transform what, um, you know, that downtown stretch of the river looks like. Um, Just be so different to have a wild river after it's been dammed for so long. But lots of lots of pros and cons of both directions. You know, it's like, well, it could be better fish habitat, but it could also send contaminated sediment down the river and it would be expensive to maintain them, but it would also be expensive to get rid of them. And, um, you know, just so many, so many different things to think about before I think they come up with a recommendation. Interesting. And you even said at some point the river could be really shallow during parts of this parts of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And you know, for anybody who spent a lot of time on one of the less dammed rivers, like the St. Croix, um, you'll very quickly see, I mean, down by Stillwater, it's deep. But if you get up by Marina and St. Croix, Scandia, up towards Osceola, it's just a very wide braided shallow channels in most parts of the river. You can be walking, just wading in the water. Um, I don't think from what I understand, it's not something that the entire river would become shallow. It would mainly apply to that several mile stretch in what we consider the Minneapolis Gorge right now. Um, But then it would just be a lot more dynamic. It would be deep at some times of the year and then shallow at some times of the year. So a lot more changes happening depending on what month it is. Yeah. Well, that will be really interesting to see what their study recommends. And I can imagine there's going to be some extensive conversations, I'll call them. I know, I know. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And it's like, some people are like, oh no, but you know, what would, what would happen to the boats that like to use the deep water? And then other people are like, oh, but have you seen other cities in different parts of the country where they now have these white water, um, you know, kayaking opportunities right in the city? And yeah, it's just a lot to think about how, how it could transform the area. Oh my goodness. So fascinating. Well, is there anything else you'd love to share with us on this little bound podcast? You've been such a wealth of knowledge and I know you could, you know, you have so much extensive background and education and all sorts of things, um, which, you know, we 
would we could probably talk about eight hours straight on all the I fun know, facts. I know, I know. I'm Minnesota like, don't Wisconsin. Give me, <laughs> <laughs> don't get me started. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know what else. Um, yeah, I mean, I really am inspired by how many people I see getting excited and engaging and doing things to protect and conserve the environment in Minnesota. I feel like it is one of those few things that we all still seem to agree on nowadays Mm -hmm. Um, that regardless of where you land on the political spectrum, it's like everybody loves our lakes. Everybody loves our forests. You know, if you live in Minnesota, you like nature. That's, that's why you're here, why you love our state. Um, So it is cool to me to see that people are engaging and people are doing stuff and, you know, that we are starting to see some of these great success stories. And yeah, that gives me hope. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's always good to travel to other states to see and kind of understand and really appreciate what a great job Minnesota does at protecting Mm -hmm. our state parks, (laughs) our waterways, watersheds, all of that, because, um, other states you will find don't have as many resources available to the public to go enjoy wild spaces. And coming from Minnesota, you sometimes scratch your head like, well, what happened or why didn't they do that? And it's such a shame that they didn't. And even if they have this great spot that they could make into a wonderful nature center, whatever they don't. So, you know, if you take a step back and go and travel to maybe some other places and, um, you know, we do appreciate what we have here, but then you really appreciate it when you see what could possibly happen if we didn't take care of these things, um, and fund them, of course. So, um, I've heard a lot of people, um, joke about the Minnesota superiority complex and I'm like, Oh, I mean, it's kind of true. We kind of have a reason. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, I will say um, spending time in the state of Washington, they also do a wonderful job there. I think Minnesota and Washington um, really have it down in as far as being like incredible outdoor playgrounds and also really good stewards of the land and the water. Mm -hmm. Um, That's another great. I feel like that's another great um, vacation destination during the summer if you want to really experience, you know, beautiful wilderness. Yeah. Um, but there are other states, and I, I don't feel like I should be calling them out, but um, that I've, <laughs> I've traveled to, and I kind of scratched my head and be like, you have a lot of, I know there's resources, yeah. but I'm so curious on why you didn't take the step to either maintain yeah. this and or make it available to the public and or, you know, keep the water systems clean, things like that. But yeah. Um, yeah. so, yes, you can get the superiority complex. So it's probably good to you know, ground ourselves and be like, well, let's all make sure we don't take it for granted either. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Well, Angie, you've been so much fun to chat with. Thank you so much for joining us on the Minnesota Bound podcast today. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. It has been very fun. Oh my goodness. And uh, where I want you to um, plug where people can find your Instagram and TikTok and even your blog and everything one more time. Sure. So on Instagram or TikTok, it is MN nature underscore awesomeness, Minnesota nature awesomeness. Um, my blog is eastmetrowater.org. And that is the way that I can provide a little bit more detail sometimes than I can in the one minute videos. Um, and then MNWCD 
www.ghostbusters.org is a great place to go to find upcoming in-person events. Those are only going to be in the East Metro, Twin Cities, East Metro area. But for people who are local, that is a good way to find us in person as well. Fantastic. Well, keep up the good work. I'm going to keep following and and learning all sorts of things from you on the daily because you just do such great little tidbits and content on where to go, things to see, how you could, what you can do to help, nature facts you didn't even know about. So um, again, give her a follow and thanks again for joining us. Mm-hmm. 